Good morning, Kessid. It is great to be back with you again this week. How do you feel about working on our soup? You, you okay with that today? My wife is a um, great cook. She has piles and piles of, and piles of recipes and recipe books and files and magazines filled with recipes. The key, she tells me, to a great dish is the right ingredients. And so um, this morning we're going to be talking about uh, our soup again and the ingredients that we're going to be using for it. Um, we're going to do that through the lens or the filter of um, Jesus and the disciples and their reactions and responses to his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. I was first introduced to um, the book Tear Soup in uh, 2005. I was preparing to make a trip down to New Orleans, a humanitarian effort to help with folks who had um, just experienced Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina um, hit on August 29th of 05. Uh, you probably don't remember that, but I can guarantee you that every person in New Orleans remembers that date. It was the strongest hurricane to ever make landfall in the United States. It um, broke the levees, it flooded the city. Uh, it was unbelievable to see. Um, you know, you think of a lot of water or a lot of rain, but you don't really imagine that it's ocean. Like stories of people whose living rooms were flooded and sharks were swimming around their living room and other fish all around through the city. It left 1,800 people dead and $125 billion in damages by the time it left. When I visited the city, a few weeks after it was over, it looked like a set from an apocalypse movie. It was remarkable. Um, the work that we were called to come and do in the city was to um, provide some immediate critical incident response for adults, counseling. I mentioned that previously to you. And then also we were there to work with children on helping them understand their response to so much loss that surrounded them. We did that in a couple ways. Um, one, we uh, asked children to write down um, a lament, a biblical lament. Uh, and so we met with them in their classrooms that, by the way, were just half of sheetrock. The bottom four or five feet had already been flooded and stripped out, so you could look from one classroom to the next to the next. And so we would uh, meet with first graders first and then second, and then we would just make our way through the day meeting with various classrooms. And we asked them to write a lament about how they um, experienced the hurricane and um, what they were feeling. I, uh, I have one of those uh, pictures and laments uh, framed that I keep still as a treasure. Uh, in my own house. One of the um, young sixth graders 
wrote this down. I feel sadness, I feel thankful, I feel angered. Three feelings for Hurricane Katrina. And then their lament sounds like this. God, I don't understand why this is happening. I come to school and friends are missing. Why? I have to live with my sister because my mom is away. Why? I don't know what to say even. Why? I don't know how to act. Why? I don't know how to deal with all of these changes. And I feel empty and afraid. There's no more normal to my life. Why? I thought my friends and my family were the only thing besides you that I could run to, but they're gone. I only have two more questions for you, God. Where are you? Where are you? Some of you may have felt a little bit of that kind of grief this last year, either with 2020 or around things of past hurts that you simply moved on and hoped might go away. One of the other things that we did then was we uh, read Tear Soup to classroom after classroom after classroom of students. First, second, third grade, and on. At the end of uh, our first day of sharing the book Tear Soup, uh, we and the other counselor and myself were preparing to leave, and as we were getting into our car, one of the sixth grade girls came running up to the fence around the playground. She hollered our names, we turned around, and she yelled out, um, thank you for teaching us how to make tear soup. At which point I cried and made some of my own. One of the benefits and value of a book like Tear Soup is that it helps us understand the grieving process better. And understanding what we are experiencing um, is empowering to us. It, um, it gives us a sense of the path that we are on. It normalizes our experience. Um, previously, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the need to make tear soup. This morning, we're going to look at a little different element of that. We're going to talk about the ingredients of grieving. What goes into the pot? What's the soup made of? And um, how are we um, best going to be able to do that? We're going to do that again by looking at what I would consider probably the greatest grief um, of all time the grand grief, the grief of Jesus dying amidst his disciples and friends. Many of you are familiar with Kuba Ross's stages of grief. We used to talk about those stages um, as something that we moved through kind of from one to the next to the next to the next. We know a little more about grief now and what I think we understand is that really instead of them being stages of grief, 
it's more accurate to describe them as ingredients in the soup. They're ingredients in the grief process. And some people put a little more of this in, and some people add a little more of that. Um, some people might skip a little bit of an ingredient, but they go into um, making the soup what it is. Understanding, the reason that we're talking about this again this morning, is that understanding this grief process, I think, does a couple things for us. One, if you've found 2020 to be a hard year, then um, we're all in that grief process together, and that understanding what goes into the soup then can help us process what we've been experiencing. And I think second also is that you probably haven't noticed this, but people around us sometimes are struggling with what they're experiencing, either identifying it or processing it. And when we understand the grief process better, that allows us to have more compassion for those folks and to help us be able to um, separate out um, a grief expression from someone having a hard time about something else. So we're going to look at, um, this morning, just briefly, five ingredients that typically go in to the soup that we make. We're going to start that um, with a friend of ours from um, Jesus' discipleship group. And before, before we talk about this particular person, I want to say this about him, because have you noticed that in lots of sermons, Peter gets picked on? Have you noticed that? Like, like it's just really sad, okay? Sure, he has a little bit of an impulse control problem, okay? But he's probably picked on a lot because he's a lot like us. He sometimes speaks before he thinks, and he reacts strongly to things. Um, but Peter is a good guy, okay? So let's, let's just be really respectful of Peter. So, Jesus has been now here with his disciples for three years. He has some really hard news to break to them. And that news is that he is soon going to be dying. He begins to share that information with them in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, Bible reading devices, feel free to tune in or uh, on the monitors. So in Matthew 16, 21 through 23, we find these words. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day to be raised to life. So that's what he begins to tell his disciples. Now, one disciple has a strong reaction to that. Any guess? All right, so then Peter steps forward, and he says this. He, Peter took him aside, the text says, and began to rebuke him. We can't skip over that. <laughs> so here is Peter rebuking 
just the God of the universe, okay, saying, nope, Jesus, you're wrong. We're never going to let this happen on my watch. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus then turns and says to Peter, our good friend, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. How could Peter possibly be a stumbling block? Because the first ingredient that he wants to drop into the soup is denial. This is never going to happen, Jesus. And if Jesus stays there with the denial and the soup, then we don't have a crucifixion, a resurrection, and a gospel. You see, Peter's doesn't have the big picture. He's thinking about what? His own loss. Now again, in fairness to Peter, he's lost his family. He's not a fisherman anymore. He's left his community. He's been following Jesus in the hope that Jesus is going to free all of Israel from Roman rule. That's pretty disappointing to find out that that hope is dying. We deny as a way of preparing ourselves to hold the truth. We all tend to do it to some degree. It's almost reflex. And even if you know that that's one of the ingredients in the soup, it still gets thrown in there pretty quickly and easily. Many years ago, before um, iPhones, I uh, went to visit another European country. And so um, I prepared for that trip by buying a new digital camera. Like they used to make cameras that were just cameras. Some of you may remember that. And so I bought this really nice camera to go to uh, this country, which will remain unnamed because what I'm going to tell you next about it is probably not good. But um, I was warned before I went that if you go to Italy, you should never, um, oops, you should never um, take valuables because pickpockets were everywhere. So to outfox the pickpockets, I decided that I would buy um, a pouch that zipped up, that I could put the camera in that just fit perfectly, and then um, this leather pouch, you could run your belt through the loop and hold it onto your belt so that nobody could run by and snatch it, which I thought was a pretty good strategy. So um, in addition to that, I felt like if I put this on my belt in a particular place, it would be even more noticeable if someone tried to get into it. And so I slid the camera over next to my belt buckle, assuming that if people were messing around in that area, I would know. <laughs> so I'm on a bus with the group that I'm traveling with, and um, the public bus gets more and more crowded. 
Finally, all the seats are taken, and this little old lady, sweet little old lady, gets on the bus and starts to look for a seat. I'm in one, because I got on the bus earlier. But she's a sweet little old lady. So what's the appropriate and kind thing to do? So, because I was much younger then, remember? <laughs> and so I got up out of my seat. I said, no, here, you please, you sit here. And then the bus continued to fill up. As it did, um, I recognized the crowd was jostling me and everything, and it was like, somebody is going to get to that camera. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn and face the windows of the bus and the seats where the little old lady is right here. You tracking with me on this so far? Okay. It was a good strategy. I get off the bus at my stop, and I reach for my camera, any guesses, and it's gone. <laughs> the little old lady, okay, now has a nice brand new digital camera that I'm hopeful is supporting her family or something like that. Here's the point of this story. As a trauma therapist, you remember that, right? I'm a trauma therapist. I know the ingredients that go in the soup. And still, I reached for that camera a half a dozen times, patting the pouch. Maybe I just didn't notice it in there. I didn't. And then the words that kept going over and over in my head, you can probably guess because we all tend to say them. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. And then I'd look for it again. <laughs> it was still gone. I can't believe it. That's the role of denial. Denial eases us in to the soup, if you will. It's an early ingredient, oftentimes, um, and a necessary one. But if it is the only ingredient that goes into the soup, the soup will be bitter and it will be left unfinished. This last year, can you think of any denial that, we'll not say you, we'll say the people who should have been here today and weren't, okay, those people, can you think of any denial that they might have engaged in? Uh, everything from this is a hoax to I don't, don't know what's going on or was I the only one that said in the morning when I got up, are you kidding me? It's still locked down? We're still locked down? I can't go to a restaurant? Or when you get to the Costco front door and you left your mask back in the car? Are you kidding me? I, really? I, okay. So we all engage in that denial process, do we not? Don't leave me alone, okay, out there. But denial is only one ingredient. The second ingredient is possibly known to you as well. Anger is an understandable and common grief response. When we've been hurt, we feel angry about that. When we've been violated, when we've lost something of value, anger is a typical response. 
to that loss or hurt. And anger actually flavors the soup. It helps the soup. A few chapters over in the story, um, we read an example of anger as part of the grief process. This one appears in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. I'm excited to see some of you checking or writing that down because sometimes I just make stuff up. So it's, it's probably good that you do check. In Matthew's Gospel, the story of cleansing the temple happens right after the triumphal entry. Do you remember Jesus is going to Jerusalem? Crucifixion is going to happen. Remember all the palm leaves? We talked about that, all of them being thrown down. And everybody is shouting and yelling and being very happy. And what's Jesus doing? Remember, he was weeping over the city. And then now we have from that moment, the next in the text describes the cleansing of the temple with these words. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall not be called, or shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. You're familiar with the cleansing of the temple. And my guess would be that people have explained that to you in the past as, well, we can, we can let this pass because this was righteous anger. Anybody ever heard that? This is righteous anger. They were not doing the right things in the temple. Jesus should have been angry. He took that and he turned over the tables. I believe that's true. And I find it curious that it comes right after his weeping over the city as he is preparing for his own death, knowing that that is very soon coming. Peter's denial and ours around 2020 and also past hurts. Now anger. The passage that comes next is even more intriguing in light of what we're talking about. Jesus possibly feeling sad and grieving about his own impending death. You probably haven't heard a lot of sermons on this passage. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Wither and die. I added that a little bit of that. <laughs> but this idea of, what? He's angry at a fig tree. Could it be that like you and I, in his grief, in what he was facing, he felt what you and I have been feeling and do about losses, violations, and hurts. Have you noticed in this last year any anger issues around you? 
people being a little more on edge than they might typically be. Last weekend, within 72 hours, we had 11 mass shootings in the U.S. According to the news stations, Homicides in Portland have gone up 740% in this last year. That's a lot of anger. That's a lot of hurt. With people struggling on understanding and knowing what to do with it. The third ingredient, I'm glad you asked, is um, bargaining. It goes into the soup. Most of us engage in that as well. It's not a bad thing. It's a very understandable one. As we look a little forward into um, it getting closer to Jesus being arrested, we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the garden, he says this, my soul is overwhelmed to the point, uh, sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me, which is what he says to his closest disciples. I want to point something out about that. Jesus is grieving. Notice that we don't want to grieve alone. We do our best grieving in community with one another. That's why the church is so, so vital for people in this last year and in this difficult time. So he says, watch with me. Now he's not looking from the disciples to get like words of wisdom. Come on, Jesus, you can do it. Encouragement. He's just looking for company. He just doesn't want to be alone in his grief. And neither do we. Which gives us rare opportunity to join other people in helping to carry their burdens, like we're called to. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you. We all want things to be better, to get back to the way that they were. We don't want to experience the hurt or the loss. We ask why. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that question in um, my office as people describe the hurts and the losses and the tragedies that they've experienced. I just want to know why. Let me tell you something this morning about why. The reason that we ask why oftentimes is because why is a convenient avoidance of what? Why allows us to stay in our heads, which is about 18 inches from where we're trying to avoid. Why is academic, it's intellectual. Why is often an avoidance of the what. The what is what happened. The what is what I lost. The what is where it hurts. What possible why could make the hurt go away? 
Do you notice that we've been struggling with that even as a culture? Like, where did this come from? Tell me more about the virus. Who let it loose? You know, how did it happen? We just want to know the why. Rather than, this really stinks. This is a really lousy year. This is really hard. The heart work is what allows us to grieve and eventually heal. Have you seen plenty of bargaining this last year? Have you engaged in it? Well, maybe if I just do this, then I can get in the restaurant. Will you let, will you let me do some indoor dining? Okay, I'm tired of the t- takeout. Can, if, if, we, if we work real hard, can we get back by, you know, this date? We just, we bargain. We want to negotiate with our pain so that we don't have to feel it face on. The fourth ingredient we're not going to like, like we'd like the first three, is depression. Depression gets a bad rap from all the TV commercials, like it's something wrong with us, when the fact is that depression might actually be something kind of right with us. When I went down to New Orleans and people were depressed because their homes homes had been washed away, any guess what they were feeling? Part of their grief was they were depressed. If they weren't depressed, as a mental health therapist, I would have been a little worried skipping down the street like everything was just fine. Depression is an appropriate response to when we've been hurt, when something's been taken away from us. We have an interesting story about that in Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, um, the crucifixion has already happened. Jesus is in the tomb. We can watch as the disciples try to process their grief. We find two of them on the road to Emmaus. They're walking along when they get a very interesting visitor. Do you you know who that is? Jesus comes alongside of them, but they don't recognize him. And he begins to kind of poke at them, to kind of ask questions. Here's what it says. What are you discussing together as you walk along? Jesus is asking. They stood still, their faces downcast, which means Bible words for they were depressed. They'd have to get some meds. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And then Jesus asks a therapeutic question, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. Isn't that cute that they're telling him about him? But the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that. We don't hope anymore. The tense of that Greek word means that we used to hope, but now our hope is done. 
um, they have no hope left. They feel purposeless, hopeless, wandering the roads. Depression is a necessary element to our soup. It adds more flavor and taste. Grieving intentionally allows us again to share in God's perspective. Have you noticed any depression in the last 15 months? In yourself or in those around you? Do you feel tired, exhausted when you get up, lonely, separated from others? All of those questions they ask you on the commercials about depression then you're normal. That's how we process our grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, and depression. It has been a hard, sad year. There's one more ingredient that I want to talk about before we have to rush off and down to the river or the pool. Acceptance. You want to stir that in a lot. Acceptance often comes towards the end of our grief process. A final ingredient, if you will. My wife and I, um, at this season in our lives, older now, get to take vacations a little more frequently than other folks might when you're young. Um, we had some great vacations planned, actually, for 2020. Machu Picchu, which got canceled because Peru wouldn't let folks in, of course. Um, but we noticed, since we plan vacations together, that we plan differently. I start thinking about adventures. Do they have zip lines? Do people get to jump out of airplanes? Can you ride bicycles, you know, um, down mountains? I, I look for adventures. My wife Googles something very different. She begins her research looking for restaurants. <laughs> There's a five-star. I found a five-star here and three-star over here. My wife has, I mentioned it, good cook. She has a very sophisticated palate. Um, bless her heart, she has taught me to appreciate food far more. I, um, my palate is pretty much meat and potatoes in some form or another, oftentimes that come with a number. You just order a number two, okay? She orders all sorts of other little things and fancy stuff. She uses terms that I'm less familiar with. She uses terms like um, robust, um, depth of flavor, um, full-bodied, terms that I would never use at Killerburger. It would just, <laughs> like, give me the classic, okay? But she's sophisticated. Acceptance is depth of flavor. Acceptance completes the soup this morning. Acceptance satisfies our grief hunger 
Acceptance allows us to make the soup edible. We find a story about acceptance right at the beginning of Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in their clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Now I want you to notice something. The women are at the tomb because they have accepted that Jesus is gone. I don't want you to miss that. They've allowed their grief to be full-bodied. The depth of flavor. They've leaned into it fully. They're surprised when Jesus is not there. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words their grief had reached its final stage of soup. Now when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and the others. What that means is that the rest of the disciples were hiding out, probably in some upper room somewhere, and if they were like the others on the road, they were depressed. Depressed. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, I can't believe this, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. A good time for a series on the place of women in the New Testament. Amen, ladies? Peter, of course, gets up and runs to the tomb, bending over. He sees the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away wondering to himself what had happened. He's still wondering. The women do not miss this. The women went to the tomb because they had accepted the loss of Jesus. Their grief had come full circle. The soup was finished. They embraced the hurt. I'm not overstating things when I say to you this morning, we might not have the gospel like we have the gospel had the women not gone to the tomb that morning because they had accepted the loss and finished the soup. Acceptance of the loss led them to the tomb. The tomb led them to the resurrection and the resurrection that led them to new hope and new life. None of us like the soup, but if we're going to eat it, don't we want it to be robust, full-bodied, depth of flavor? 
That happens because we lean into our pain. We embrace our hurts. And by embracing them, they lead us to recovery and healing. Acceptance of our hurts and loss can lead us to new life, just like the resurrection and the ladies who accepted their loss and alerted the disciples to the fact that he was alive. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning with us. You are good to us beyond all counting and measure. We thank you that you know life that we live, that you understand our hurts and our losses, that you come alongside us in our darkest moments, that you are our way home. Father, give us courage to face life like Jesus, to lean into those hard places, to be attuned to our hearts. Thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather as your people in this place and to be called your children. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for being part of God's wonderful family and for joining one another this morning and sharing in this time. That's part of our caring for each other and bearing each other's burdens. Have a wonderful week. Try to stay cool this afternoon and be safe above all. Okay? Thanks. Have a good week, you guys.